Good morning, everyone. I may have forgotten that I was doing this this morning. However, um, we're going to do we're going to switch it up. We're actually going to read out of the ESV this morning because it's going to take too long to pull up the NIV. So let me get that up for you guys real quick. Sorry, Tommy. I'm so getting fired. All right. So we're going to uh, Matthew 12, 1 through 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath... The priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, would not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. All right. Good morning. Everybody good? Okay. Turn up light number one for me. And we are off and running. So this is one of those, uh, those passages that you don't plan, but it just happens to align with what everybody is talking about. And uh, I, I don't let like, what's going on typically out, out there dictate what happens here. Um, but here we are, and the Spirit has led. And I didn't start Matthew a year and a half ago planning, I bet at the end of June, There's going to be this conflict where we're going to have to choose between law and love. And what are we going to do? And the passage is going to line up. It's going to be perfect. And I'm going to plan this out. Here we are. So if you get mad at me, that's fine. You know the first. Um, So uh, this is the topic of the day. And we're going to talk about it. And uh, um, trying to think if there's any any other setup. I don't think there is. Um, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to jump into this passage and, uh, and, and, and see what's in store for us, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I ask that you would guide our hearts and our minds today. Help us to seek nothing but you. Help us to put, uh, once again, Jesus as Lord of every part of our lives. And um, help us to really be open-minded, open-hearted. Um, search us. Uh, expose the darkness in our hearts and our lives. Help us to align these things with the things of you. Um, let us break the idols. Let us um, focus on your kingdom and your kingdom alone. Thank you. In your name. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> I blew my voice out a little bit on that last song. It'll get quieter and quieter until we're done. And I'm whispering. Okay. So here we go. I'm going to start right here. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pick some of the heads of grain and eat them. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. So, um, see, where to start with this? Uh, first off, uh, for a setup, Pharisees 
would never be in a grain field on a Sabbath. Uh, and so there's a reason that they're there. They're there to trap Jesus, and we're going to talk about all of this and exactly what's going on. First off, a little bit of context with where they were. Um, in the ancient world, it was no different than today. These grains, um, fields of wheat, were um, planted usually alongside roads. Um, and as you're walking down the road, it was legal to go and pluck a head of grain. Um, and what you would do is you would rub it in your hands, and you would separate the chaff from the kernel in the center, and you would drop the chaff, and it would fly away, and you would eat it. Now, um, I have no idea what the laws are today about driving through Pasco County by an orange field and like pulling over, I'm hungry, and going into the field and eating an orange. Pretty sure it's illegal. I don't really know. Maybe you know. Um, but if you, if you venture onto somebody's land, you're already trespassing, and then you're like eating their stuff. That's illegal. So um, these Pharisees confront these, these men and say, what you're doing is not allowed. Now, to be clear, they were not stealing. This was legal in this day, in the first century. Um, as long as they were not using any metal tools, um, stone tools or wooden tools of any kind, they could eat what is growing on the edge of the fields. It was actually part of Deuteronomic law um, that farmers had to leave the edges of their field for gleaming, what's called gleaming, people walking through who were in need, who were hungry, travelers. Um, before the Yeti and the Igloo were invented, you just pick off the side of the road and eat, road and eat right? Um, so... They, uh, they're traveling, and, and so the law basically looked like this in Deuteronomy 23. It says, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears without your hand. Uh, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle uh, to your neighbor's standing grain. As long as you weren't, like, harvesting, you couldn't take a sickle and, like, cut a bunch, take it home, and sell it. You could just take and you could eat right there while you were traveling. It was the law. The farmers actually couldn't um, harvest to the edges. They had to leave it there for people to eat. Um, so they weren't stealing, yet these Pharisees were there, and they said, you have broken the Sabbath laws. The problem is, it's not illegal to eat on the Sabbath in the Jewish world. So what exactly did they do wrong? They didn't steal anything, and you're allowed to eat. What did they break? So in order to understand what's going on here, um, you have to familiarize yourself with a bit of what was happening in what's called the Second Temple period. Literally, the Second Temple that the Jews had um, in, in Jerusalem. It was, uh, it, was, it was rebuilt in the time of Ezra, and then it was kind of, it was rebuilt again, made bigger, but Herod. But that was, whole thing was considered the Second Temple. The first one was destroyed um, in exile. So, this is what's called the Second Temple Period. In this Second Temple Period, if you ever hear this word, this is what it means. It's basically the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament towards the end of it. Um, there is a lot of writings that are happening. There are rabbis. There are, um, there are synagogues with different, um, different teachings, different uh, sort of yokes, if you will, different modes of thought coming out. And these things are all being written, and they're all being put out. Um, lots and lots of books being written. Um, books of the Apocrypha during this time. All kinds of books. And in these books, oftentimes they are expounding upon how to understand the Old Testament, um, or what they just called the, the Tanakh, it was the Jewish scriptures. Um, now, the prohibition for the Sabbath in that day, the Sabbath, um, it was basically a day where God said, you're not going to work. That is really the prohibition. That, that was the proclamation. It was a gift from God to the people. It was a gift from God that simply said, we're not going to work every day. We're going to take a day and we're going to receive what God has for us. We're going to eat 
Um, we're going to rest. Our cattle aren't going to work. Nothing, nobody's going to work. We're gonna, just going to be. It was meant to be a gift from God to his people. For 400 years, though, up until the time of Christ, um, people had been debating, the scribes had been writing and debating, well, what does this mean, though, not to work on the Sabbath? Um, the Sabbath was incredibly important to these people, okay? So if you were to take all of the law of the Jewish people, all of it, um, and you were to whittle it down to three things, which, which they did in the first century, um, there were three particular things that they called identity markers, okay? Um, and the identity markers were very simple. It was, it was the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath. It was the kosher diet, and it was circumcision. If you kept these three things, you were basically in adherence with the entirety of the law. In other words, these three things were placeholders for the whole thing, okay? These are called identity markers. If these three things were being adhered to, you were justified as one of the people of God, okay? Um, so the Sabbath was really, really important. And so they did everything they could to make sure you were keeping these three laws, the Sabbath, the circumcision, and the, the kosher diet. And so they would basically take this law and they would build what's called a hedge around it of other laws to make sure you never broke it. So they wanted to define what work was. They wanted to define all these things. So by the time of Jesus, this had gotten so detailed that here, I'll tell you right now exactly what the, what the disciples were guilty of. By plucking a head of grain... They were guilty of reaping on the Sabbath by rubbing it in their hands together to separate uh, the kernel from the chaff. They were, um, they were guilty of what's called threshing um, by dropping the pieces that they weren't going to eat to the floor. Uh, they were doing what's called winnowing. And by the whole process, they were preparing a meal on the Sabbath. Now, yes, this is crazy but this is what they were guilty of, okay? These things had been so dissected that they were basically, you couldn't prepare a meal on the Sabbath. You, you had to prepare everything on the, on, on the day before and you just eat what you had prepared the day before. So they're walking through the fields and they're starving and they're hungry and they take a piece of grain and they go like this and they eat it. And the Pharisees look at them and say, ha, you are working on the Sabbath. You are reaping and you're threshing and you're winnowing. You're preparing a meal. And they're just like, it's like the cop. Yep, tail lights out. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Your ticket's going to be huge. And they rip it off and give it to you. And it's just like tick, 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 tick. All these things that they were doing wrong, okay? So um, the Sabbath to them was incredibly important. In fact, it was so important um, that they had literally, in their Jewish people's history during the Second Temple period, many people had died rather than break the Sabbath. There is, during the time of, uh, of, of a guy named uh, Judas Maccabeus, um, there was, I want to get this, um, get this right here, there was um, a, uh, a group of, of, of Jewish people who sought refuge in, in, in the caves in the wilderness. And they're hiding there uh, from Antiochus, who had sent some troops to destroy them, to wipe them out. They were basically Jewish sort of insurgent kind of people in the cities, um, committing some violence and stuff like that. There was whatever, all these things that were against Roman law, obviously. And they're hiding in the, in the caves in the wilderness. And Antiochus knew these are committed Jewish people. And if I attack on the Sabbath... They will not defend themselves because they will not do anything on the Sabbath. They will just sit and allow us to attack them. So Antiochus waited until the Sabbath, okay? And, and you can read about the passage, and one of the quotes from the passage says, let us all die in our innocence. Heaven and earth testify for us that you are killing us unjustly. And they wouldn't even pick up their swords to defend themselves, and these were warriors. They could have done so. 
They waited until the Sabbath and they came in and they slaughtered them all with their families and their children. They would rather die than break the law. They would rather death happen to humanity, to themselves and others, than break the law. There are instances in scriptures of people being put to death for breaking the Sabbath. It was this important to them. And so, they're in this field. And the disciples supposedly break the law. Now, what's really crazy uh, about this whole thing is that you can search the scriptures from beginning to end and you will not find any specifications regarding the Sabbath. The only thing the Bible says about the Sabbath is uh, don't work and keep it holy. Okay? Um, On top of that, there are only two other things that it specifies because people brought them up. Um, Only two things that expound upon this thing. Um, The first one was you weren't allowed to gather wood. You see in Numbers chapter 15, they found a guy on the Sabbath gathering wood and they're like, what do we do? I don't know. And they bring him, and eventually they, they put him to death for gathering wood on the Sabbath. The only other thing the scripture says about it is uh, you couldn't start a fire. These two things are the only expansions that the Bible even mentions. There's a random passage in Nehemiah where he closes, where he closes the gates and doesn't let the merchants in um, because he doesn't want people profiteering on the Sabbath. But other than that, all of these things are made up. They're all man-made. People are so terrified of breaking laws. People are so terrified um, of all of this that they will not feed people who are hungry. They will not take in people who need shelter. um, And they would rather themselves or others die than break the law of God. This is how important it was to them. And this is the passage that we find ourselves in. So, after 400 years of hedge building around these, these laws that were meant to be a gift. It's seriously, it's like, it's like your boss tells you, you're going to take a day off tomorrow. You've been working really hard. Take the day off. And I've prepared for you your schedule for tomorrow. You're getting up at six in the morning. You're going to make breakfast. This is what you're going to make. This is what you're going to do. And your whole day is mapped out for you. It's a day off for you. And you're like, how is this a day off? I'm, I'm literally following all this. This is way more work. Like, um, you, if you wanted to write a letter at some point on the Sabbath, it got to the point where you, you could only, the law laid out in, in the Babylonian Talmud that you could only write one letter on, on one page. That's all you could do. So what people started doing is they wanted to write a letter. They'd write it right on a page, go to the next one, write another letter. This is way more work on the Sabbath than, than was ever intended. It was a gift from God for you to serve you, and now it has taken over and these laws are oppressing you. Okay? So here's Jesus' response. He says, uh, it says, he answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but for only the priests. Now, um, little side note, Matthew is, um, is really intent on displaying Jesus as a descendant of David and linking Jesus to David. So Matthew purposely gathers all the stories that have to do with Jesus and David, every mention of it, and puts them in the book. It's one of the most important things to him because he's writing to the Jewish people. He wants them to know this is your king. And when you read anything, any mention of David, when you read the story of David, you are supposed to, in the mind of the early reader, compare it with Jesus. And, and they work parallels that are amazing into these passages. So it starts off, haven't you heard, when David uh, went... Uh, what David did when he and his companions were hungry. He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread. So here's what's happening here. Um, the story is found in 
1 Samuel 21, I've removed the parts that don't have anything to do with what we're talking about today. It's really covered in verses 1 through 6. It says this, David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him. Big fan. David said, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, uh, answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here. So the priests gave him the consecrated bread since there was no bread there. Okay, let me set this for you. Um, in the temple, um, there was furnishings in the temple and everything that had been furnished in the temple was only to be used in the temple. For no other reason could it ever be used. If the bread was consecrated for the priests, which it was, it was called the show bread. Um, it could only be given to the priest and nobody else. That was the law. However, David is on the run for his life. David and his men, his followers. As I say this, I want you to picture Jesus. Okay. Now, David is on the run. David has been anointed king, but he does not yet sit on the throne like Jesus. David and his followers are being pursued by the one who believes he is in charge. Saul, like the Pharisees. And Saul is pursuing David and his followers to kill them because they are threatened by the potential rule of David. He's gather, gathering a following amongst the Jewish people. All right, now, um, David goes into the temple and there's no regular bread. He says, I'm sorry, all I got is like consecrated bread, the show bread. And he says, but... I can see that you're hungry and you're starving. And if I don't feed you, you're going to collapse and you will die. And so, um, what is more important than obeying the law, even the law of God, is showing love and taking care of the images of God here in this world. And so he takes the bread and he gives it to David. And David and his men eat and they move on and they live. Jesus uses this story to speak to the Pharisees and say, here's what's going on. He says, don't you remember that the law can be broken to save the life of people? That the law exists indeed for people. Then um, he has another one here. And it says, or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? So the priests are in the, in the temple um, every single day, including the Sabbath. And Jesus says, the priests are allowed to work on the Sabbath. Do you know why? Have you pondered this? He says, because they're doing the work of God. They are reconciling people to God. They're bringing them healing and salvation through the work that they're doing. They are the representation, the priests are the representation of God's presence in this world. And so their work must carry on. At no point should the, the priest stop working. And so they will literally desecrate the Sabbath the, the law of God, the most important law in the eyes of the Jewish people, they will literally break this law to care for people, human beings, because people are more important than laws, even the law of God. So, um, this is what Jesus says. This is where Jesus kind of goes um, with all of this. Now, when you are reading the scriptures, um, what we are dealing with here 
is, is not, oftentimes people read the story and they're like, well, Jesus is, he's witty. He told some stories to get his, his followers off the hook, to get him out of trouble. Jesus is not trying to get his, his people out of trouble. Jesus is arguing about how the law should actually be interpreted, how the Bible, the scriptures, the Tanakh, the Torah, all of it, how the whole thing should actually be read. Over and over in scriptures, there is a constant reminder from the prophets, from God's people, that, like, that the law exists for people. To serve them, people don't exist for the law. And so this is the regular thing that they are teaching throughout scriptures. Um, And so one of the things that we're talking about in this passage um, is really how you interpret the scriptures. Now, I know um, a lot of you have heard people say, read a passage of scripture and and they interpret it in a particular way. And then you'd say things like, well, you shouldn't be doing that. I don't interpret the scriptures. I just read it. And do what it says. And that's how people tend to talk. Um, that, is, that is an interpretation, by the way. You can't just read, if you're just reading the Bible and doing what it says, you are literally interpreting it. And here's what I mean. Um, when you read passages where it talks about the heavens, what do you think of? Well, clouds, space. We live in a post-science, post-enlightenment kind of world. There are things that we know that in that time they had no idea existed. So when you read in the passage of scriptures where it talks about the heavens, uh, the heavens and earth declare the glory of God, all this stuff, you picture specific things that these people knew nothing about. Their picture of the heavens was nothing like yours. They didn't know the world was round, like some people did. They didn't know the world was round. They didn't know that we were, they didn't know what space was, that it existed. They knew nothing about this stuff. And so they were simply interpreting from what they could see. This guy was kind of a dome and there was like lights coming through the hole in the dome, the holes in the dome. And there was, um, the glory of God was coming through. That's what the stars were. And they were telling a story. And this is how they believed. They had a three-tiered world. They believed hell was below your feet in the lakes of fire that you see rumble up sometimes, like in Hawaii, and heaven was up there, and this is the neutral zone, right? Um, And so, like, this is how they viewed the world. You don't view it that way. Therefore, when you read the Bible, you are interpreting it with your mindset. When you think of kingdoms, your picture is different. When you think of nations, your picture is different. When you think of lands and gods, your picture is different, Okay, so what we're talking about is that you basically have what is called a hermeneutic. It's a big fancy word. All it means is it's one's methods and rules of interpretation. You have rules of interpretation. Um, let's list a few of them. So there's, there's one that I just talked about. It says basically uh, the rule is whatever it says in the 21st century English modern context as if it were written today is what it means to me. And there are a lot of people who read scriptures like this. Um, I'm, I'm not judging what's right and wrong today. I'm giving examples, and maybe you can search yourself and look for your own rules and how you read the Bible, how, what your hermeneutic is. This is one of them. I just read it, and whatever it says, that's what it means, okay? That's how some people read it. That is a, a specific way of interpreting, okay? Um, there's another one. There's long traditions that go back about 500 years that say basically whatever it meant in the medieval period during the time of the reformers was, is what it means to me today. So there are traditions um, that have different kinds of things. If you grew up Catholic, then you might have an idea of we interpret the Bible based upon what the archdiocese or the Vatican, how they interpret these things, and they tell us how to interpret it, and you're reading it through a specific lens. If you are a Haitian Christian or a Cuban Christian, your interpretation is going to be different. If you're an African-American Christian, your, your interpretation is likely 
going to be vastly different than the average white evangelical. Um, that is how we read the scriptures. Um, my personal hermeneutic, the way, one of the rules I apply, there's a few, but the, the main one I try to apply is whatever it meant to the original audience in their particular worldview, cosmology, and cultural constructs slash context is what it means to me today. So when I open the scriptures, that's what I'm going to go for. So I'm going to read some commentaries of, pe- of historians and people that have studied these things um, to try to understand the mindset of the writer when they're writing. What did this word mean in their day? Not just the definition in the Greek. What did, how did they use it? Um, what about the audience? What city were they in? Is there something going on that the writer is writing about? And this is the hermeneutic I'm trying to use, and so I'm trying to get that information. Um, side note. I have a lot of side notes today. Um, uh, I think not this week, but the week after, I'm going to be posting um, online like uh, sort of uh, a, a small little how-to of how to use commentaries and the ones that I use and recommend because I get a lot of questions about um, where can I pick up, pick up more of this information, where do you learn this kind of stuff. So I'm going to, I'm going to write something. I'll lay it all out for you. Um, follow me on Facebook. Uh, <laughs> and I'll, just, I'll put it out there. And, and so hopefully bring some people into this conversation. Um, so basically a hermeneutic is, is what's going on here. Now, Jesus is arguing with these Pharisees about how they read the scriptures. It is no coincidence that the last chapter, right before this passage, ended like this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Remember what the yoke was? Last week we talked about this. A yoke was a rabbinical way of saying my teachings, my interpretation of the scriptures. Um... There was a saying in the ancient world that we talked about last week. Uh, remember Rabbi uh, Joseph ben Sirah used to say, um, come to me all who are uneducated uh, and I will teach you. And basically he eventually says, um, I have found rest. So if you work really, really hard um, and you follow me and you move yourself from uneducated to educated and you do a bunch of work, you will find rest for your soul the way, uh, the way I have. And then Jesus, a very similar line, except he says, come to me, all you who are just tired of the whole thing, all you who are weary, heavy laden, take my yoke upon you, and I'll just give you rest. It's just a gift. It's grace. Like the Sabbath. You shouldn't have to work to keep the law. It is something that should come naturally when your heart is filled with love and understanding of what we are doing here. And so Jesus, the last verse ends with this. Now, Matthew is constructed in a brilliant way where each thing leads to the next thing. So the last passage ends with Jesus saying, my interpretation of the scriptures and the law is different than every other rabbi you're going to find. He says, it's easy and it's light. And then they spend all of chapter 12 displaying this to you. Here's what it means that the yoke of Jesus is easy. Here's what it means that interpretation of Jesus, uh, that Jesus has of the scriptures is light and it's not heavy to carry. Here's what that means. They were standing in a field eating some wheat, okay? Uh, and then it, you're going to juxtaposition, like you're going you're to see the dichotomy between Jesus' interpretation of people when they're hungry eating on the Sabbath and then the Pharisees coming in and saying, how dare you do anything on the Sabbath? And he's displaying to you, do you see how my interpretation of the law is different? And you are supposed to read the passage and see it and maybe put yourself, which side am I actually on here? How much of the law am I pushing on people or how much am I trying to follow Jesus? What exactly is my mindset? How am I reading the scriptures? What is my hermeneutic? All of this. Now, um, let's go to 
I am so far off my notes. Okay, here we go. Let's go to the next passage. Uh, Matthew 12, 9 through 13. Um, there's a story here that gets added in right after that to expand this even farther and to even in case you didn't get the point, they're going to make it more. It goes like this. Um, going on from that place, he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Hold on. Um, uh, coincidentally, they just happened, the Pharisees, to be with a, a man who needed healing and bump into Jesus on the Sabbath of all times, okay? In the synagogue of all places. Like, let's see how many rules we can break at once, all right? So they bring it to Jesus. And he, in verse 11, we pick it up again. He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched out his hand and it was completely restored. Just as sound as the other. I'm going to save that last part there because we're going to get there. Um, so this man, it says his hand was shriveled. Um, scholars and historians, if you, if you, the, things, the things they say about this is likely at some point something was damaged, some tendon or something, and it was paralyzed and it hadn't been used in a very, very long time so there was no muscles and it had shriveled up into a small um, sort of useless appendage on his body. So this was not new. It was not in danger of killing him. He was there. Now, um, the healing laws on the Sabbath, you have to understand these to get the bigger picture. The healing laws on the Sabbath were fascinating. You could save someone's life and you could keep someone from getting worse, but you could not make them better, as crazy as that sounds. In other words, you could give them a bandage and put a bandage on it. You could not put Neosporin on that bandage and then put it on, okay? Literally, that's how it was. You couldn't put an ointment or a salve on somebody. You could wrap up a bleeding wound and say, look, we'll sew it up tomorrow. Just don't, try not to bleed out before then. That's how they would, and they would literally let people die. Death was preferred to breaking the law. That is how they interpreted these things. Okay, so Jesus runs into this man. He would be no more sick tomorrow than he was yesterday or that day. He had likely had the same condition for decades, maybe his whole life. Jesus did not have to heal him on that day. Jesus could have waited and kept the law and healed the man. Remember that. Understand that. He could have easily said, I'm going to keep the law and do the right thing. I'm just going to let him suffer one more day and remain where he is one more day. He could have kept the law. But in the mind of Jesus, if a law keeps you from doing something good for another person, the law may as well not even exist. And he will not stand by and let someone suffer for one more minute if he can do something to stop it. That is how Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, God in the flesh, treats human beings and laws. That is all. Chapter 12, read it over and over. That's what the entire thing is. Jesus saying, if the law keeps you from saving someone's life, if the law keeps someone in suffering, if the law does, then the law does not apply and does not matter. What matters is the kingdom of God, and that is all that matters. We are not kingdoms of anything. We are not citizens of anything but the kingdom of God. Uh, the kingdom of God is, is, is worldwide. It is not, it is not within boundaries. Um, your Christian brothers and sisters in Iraq and Afghanistan and around the world are 
citizens, co-citizens of this kingdom that has no military but a cross. It has no um, king or emperor. It has a Lord, Jesus. It has no earthly boundaries. It has nothing. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We are resident aliens in this place. We will never fit in with any nation in this world. We should never attempt to do so. If a nation's laws happen to align with the teachings of Christ, awesome. If they do not, doesn't matter. We are Christians. Jesus is Lord. And the problem arises because stuff pops up and says, yeah, but this, yeah, but who's Lord? Is that Lord or is Jesus Lord? The question we should be asking ourselves is, is what I'm, what I'm doing, is it Christ-like? Is it, theologians would say, Christoform? Like, is my life aligning with the things of Christ? If you were standing there and Christ was right next to you and you were taking a position on any issue at all, would Jesus lean over in your ear and say, that is exactly what I would do? That is how we live as Christians. This is why Christians have notoriously been killed by earthly governments for centuries for refusing to go along with anything that they were doing that did not align with the things of Christ. Again, we, Christians were not killed for proclaiming that Jesus is the only way to heaven. We were, we were killed for proclaiming that Jesus is the only Lord in this world and that your leaders are not, or your authorities are not or your images, or your ways of making money, or your power structures, or your whatever, your identities. None of that matters because Jesus is Lord. And if that thing so happens to align uh, with the things of Christ, I'm in. If it doesn't, I'm out. You cannot count on me if, you can, if Jesus wouldn't take your side. That is all. It wasn't very complicated. There's, in Matthew chapter 5, um, in verse 20, Jesus specifically says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will miss the rule of God in this world, the kingdom of heaven. Um, So what was the law of the scribes and Pharisees? It was all of this stuff that for 400 years they had been writing and inventing. Taking the Sabbath, which was a gift, and making it a heavy burden. It was all these laws. He says, look, that... I guess you could keep the law by obeying them. But um, if you want, really want to be part of what God is doing, there is a law which supersedes all of that. It is above it. It is love. It is Jesus as Lord. He says, if you want to be a, king, be a part of the kingdom of heaven, um, we are not living by these laws. There is something that rises way above it. Okay? Um, when Jesus was asked, um, what is the greatest law? What is the greatest law in, in all of the Torah? Um, his answer is fascinating because the answer used to be, um, love the Lord, is, is Deuteronomy, 20, uh, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Um, and I'm, I'm shooting from the hip here. And then it was like, um, and you're going to write this law on, on, on and you're going to tie it to your hands and you're going to, wrap on your heads and you're going to put it on the doorposts of your houses and you're going to meditate upon the law, the written law of God day and night. This is how the, 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 the Jewish people three or four times a day would, would stand up and they would, they would proclaim this. It was called the Shema, which means hear, because it starts with hear, O Israel, Shema Israel. And this was their law. This is what they live by. Love the Lord your God, keep the law. Jesus is asked, what is the most important thing? They're asking him basically to recite the Shema. They all knew it. And Jesus says, Jesus says this, in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the first and greatest commandment. Everyone's like, yeah, we're with you. And then he takes the second half, the law part, and he like cuts it off and he puts something else here. He edits the Shema. This had never been done. And here's what he says. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. You want to keep the commands of the law? You want to keep the commands, the things that God wants you to do? Love God with everything you have. Love your neighbor with everything you have. In doing so, you will fulfill exactly what the law was intended to be. And any time the law keeps you from that, it has been misinterpreted and should be disregarded as far as he's concerned. This is exactly why every leader in the early church, every apostle, every disciple spent time in prison. This is why. You will not find a first century Christian, by and large, who was not persecuted and did not spend time in prison for following Jesus against what they were commanded to do. Because for them, this was about something deeper and bigger. And then we have this really interesting ending to this story because Jesus is in the temple and he heals this man. And here's how the Pharisees responded. It says in verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Now, this seems super nefarious, okay? Um, But this was actually in perfect keeping with the interpretations of the law that they had. In Numbers chapter 15, they killed a man for gathering sticks on the Sabbath. This was in keeping with the law. Jesus should now be killed because death is preferred to breaking the law, whether it's them or somebody else. So let's get this straight. The Pharisees would rather die, would rather death abound than anyone break the law. Jesus would rather die himself under the weight of the law than anyone suffer for another day. Jesus was willing to die to save a man's shriveled hand. That is love. That is what this means. The law to him in this situation did not matter. It's like it didn't even exist. If it did exist, even a little bit in his brain, he could have said, meet me back here tomorrow morning, first thing in the morning. I'll make you right. But he did not even care because he was not living by that. He was living by the heart of God within him, being the presence of God in that place, the God who wants you to be relieved of your suffering, who wants you to feel accepted and included and loved by the presence of God from from all those who are oppressing and pushing you down and telling you you're not good enough or you're not pretty pretty enough, you're not smart enough, um, that you haven't accomplished enough, all of that. He wants to free you from all of this and nothing will keep him from moving towards you in this way. So there's a, there's a little passage in the middle here that I skipped. It's in verse 6 to 8, and I wanted to put it here last because it's fascinating. Jesus speaks to those Pharisees in the field, and here's what he says. I tell, you, uh, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, there is actually a lot of, a lot of debate about what exactly this Son of Man part means whether or not it's talking about Jesus or whether it's talking about humanity. Either way, it doesn't matter. It's clear. Um, The Sabbath doesn't exist. We don't exist to follow the laws. Um, The laws exist um, to push things to as they should be. Um, This was at the heart of the early Christian church. This was how they lived. Uh, It's very difficult for the Pharisee because the Pharisee says, well, what would we do without laws? What would we do without all these things? We follow Christ. 
we are not conformed to the pattern of this world. We are transformed by the renewing of our heart, by following Jesus in this way. It is modeled every time we gather together in communion, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. Did you deserve it? Absolutely not. And who gets to come to the table and receive what God has for them? Everyone. Those who are holy and lived perfect lives, um, who have succeeded in everything, they come to the table as well as the failure and the addict and all those who feel like they don't live up, who don't fully understand the things of God. We all come to the table and we receive the same thing together. And then what happens? Jesus says, now follow me. This is how you should live your life. And so you take what you have received and you give it to both those who you feel deserve it and those who you feel don't deserve it. Because you are the presence of God in this place. When we come together as a church, we, we bear the name of Christ. We are Christians, and this is how we should live. And so here's what we're going to do. We are going to take communion today, and we're going to do one thing on top of this as well. So our communion servers, if you are here, go on back and take the elements and spread around the room. Um, on top of that, um, we are going to do what the early Christians did after Jesus amended the Shema and gave us what, I guess, Dr. McKnight calls the, the Jesus Creed. Um, it's, it's Jesus' version of the, of, the, of the Shema. And the early Christians would say this several times a day. Um, and we're going to pronounce this thing together as a reminder to us of what it is that we are doing here, um, what the church is actually about, and what our position is in this world, in this place, speaking truth to all those who proclaim that Jesus is not Lord and that there is some other way. Okay? So our communion servers are going to spread around the room, and I'm going to have you all, if you would join me, if you're interested, if you would stand, and we're going to pronounce the Shema together. And it looks like this. Uh, it's the Jesus version of the Shema, Shema often called the Jesus Creed. Um, it's got a little bit of Hebrew at the top here, and you can, you can repeat after me with this part. And then we're going to read the second part together. Now, the early Christians were passionate because they were Jewish, and they did it loudly, and it meant something to them. And they did it with everything that they had, as if they were proclaiming it to the world around them knowing what this meant when people heard it, okay? Now, repeat after me. Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Elohinu. Adonai Echad. Okay, now say this together with me, with passion. Here we go. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place. Guide us. Help us to repent. Wake us up. Smash our idols. Remind us of your kingdom alone. As we come to communion, remind us that your body is broken for us, your blood was poured out for us, and that you are inviting us to do the same for those around us. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen.